The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are prepared to study God's Word. God has given us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, His Holy Spirit, who not only indwells us, but also has a ministry of filling us. Part of the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit is to teach us, to help us to understand and comprehend the doctrines and teachings of Scripture and to see how they apply to our own lives. And in order to have that ministry activated in our lives, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. Whenever we sin, we break fellowship with the Lord. Scripture says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Therefore, in order to have the filling of the Spirit, we need to make sure that we keep short accounts with God through the use of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at the instant of confession, God cleanses us. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume the spiritual life We can learn and understand the Word of God and see how it applies to our lives. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer uh, and preparation for the study of God's Word. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your grace that all our relationship with you and all that we have is dependent totally upon you and not upon who we are, what we do, that there are no strings attached, that grace means a free gift, that we have an eternal salvation based exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And not only have you provided everything for us in terms of our eternal salvation, but that you have provided all that we need to know in order to live life on a day-to-day basis to glorify you here on this earth. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we would be open to its teaching, that we would be objective, that under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we would be responsive to what it says in our own lives, and that you would help us to understand these doctrines and how they apply to ourselves. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. hoping maybe a little hot coffee will help lubricate the vocal cords this morning. At least keep me awake. I'm still suffering from jet lag. 
Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 3, and we will continue our study of Judges. But if you're at all like me, and I assume you are, you're about as unplugged from Judges as you can possibly be since it's been a month since we looked at this. And the other day I had to get my notes out from the last time I taught, thinking, where in the world are we? What have we what's been going on? And uh, how can we understand these things? So, Judges. We are in the first section of Judges, which is an introductory section which began in 1-1 and extends down through chapter 3, verse 6. In this introductory section, we have seen that there are certain trends and emphases that are uh, explain to us that will set the stage for what takes place in the rest of the uh, rest of the book. It is written from a Hebrew or Jewish perspective on history, which is not a Latin or Western perspective of history. And what that means is that it is the events are not developed in a precise chronological order, like we're used to reading history, but that these events are developed thematically. Now, that tells us that the events in Judges 1, remember there in the first verse we read, Now it came about, after the death of Joshua, that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord. So that places our historical context in the time subsequent to the initial conquest of the promised land. Now, let's uh, review a little chronology here. In 1446 B.C., God brought the Jews out of slavery in Egypt through the event known as the Exodus. They then spent a year at Sinai where Moses received the Mosaic Law, the Sinaitic Covenant, and they headed to the land to enter into the land, but unfortunately, because of their disobedience at Kadesh Barnea, God had to discipline the nation Al, you're going to need to check this clutch up here. It just isn't rolling. Um, God had to discipline the nation, and so they spent 40 years in the wilderness, during which time the Exodus generation died. Now, the Exodus generation was made up primarily of believers. Even though they were disobedient, they were believers for the most part, but because of their disobedience, they were not allowed to enter into the land. Once that generation, everybody from the age 20 and above, died off, with the exception of two people, Joshua and Caleb, who were the only two who were willing to trust God in the conquest to go into the land. Once they died off, then they entered into the land, and so that was roughly 1405 B.C., and the conquest took place from 1405 to 1399. It took place, the initial conquest, where they... uh, crossed the River Jordan into the land and then took major strongholds in, at uh, uh, Jericho, Ai, then in the south and then in the north. took about six years. Once they achieved the uh, strategic objectives, which gave them operational control of the promised land, then it was necessary to engage in mopping up operations where each tribe would go to the area of their allotment, their inheritance that was designated for them, And then they were to go in and completely wipe out 
annihilate the Canaanites that lived there. Now, according to uh, modern man, that kind of notion of going in and completely annihilating a culture is considered to be uh, extremely arrogant and insensitive, and we want to operate on a concept of multiculturalism, that everybody has some worth and value in their culture. But God says the only culture that has value is that culture that operates on a divine viewpoint. And once a culture deteriorates to the point of uh, perversion so great that they become a a danger to the human race, then that culture needs to be annihilated, much as surgery is designed to go in and completely excise cancer from the body. So the uh, Israelites were commanded to annihilate all of the Canaanites, man, woman, and child, and also, in some cases, to kill all of their animals. Now, the reason for that was to demonstrate that they were not going to rely on any aspect of the pagan culture around them in order to survive, that their survival, that their success was going to be totally and exclusively based upon God's provision and God's power. It was a grace function. Uh, The Canaanites had been given all the opportunity they needed to trust the Lord and to uh, respond to to uh, the gospel as it was was in the Old Testament, but they had failed. So from 1405 to 1399, you have the initial conquest, and then up until about 1350 B.C., you have the uh, conquest generation living, and then they finally died off somewhere around 1350, and by that time you have the death of Joshua. Now, chapter 1 takes place after the death of Joshua and describes in detail what happened in each of the tribal areas. Starts off with Jacob in the south, moves north, and in each case you find that there is successive and increasing compromise with the culture around them. With compromise comes cumulative defeat, and it culminates in the (coughs) excuse me situation with the tribe of Dan, In the north, in verse 34, where we discover that they not only were unable to defeat the Amorites, but that the Amorites pushed them back out of the land in defeat. So compromise with the Word of God, with the pagan culture around, always leads to defeat in the spiritual life. Chapter 2 then comes along and gives us the analysis of the historical events. We saw in the first five verses the analysis that was given by the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, the term angel of the Lord, messenger or envoy of Yahweh, we saw is a technical designation for the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The God exists in three persons with one essence. Those three persons have existed throughout all of eternity. We know them and we designate them as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, who became flesh with the virgin conception and virgin birth, uh, has existed throughout all of eternity. And it is Jesus Christ who is the one who revealed God even in the Old Testament. We know from several passages, including John 1, uh, 17 and 18, that no one has seen God at any time that it is Jesus Christ, the only begotten one, who has revealed him. That means that in the Old Testament, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and says that God came and walked with them in the cool of the day, that that was not God the Father, that was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. We know that when uh, 
the angel of the Lord appeared to uh, Abraham, that that was the second person of the Trinity. When God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai as a flaming bush, and then later when God, the finger of God, wrote the uh, Ten Commandments, that was not God the Father, that was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who has been the commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel and the command post for the operation to take the land of Canaan was located in Gilgal. And we're told at 2-1 that the angel of the Lord, the commander-in-chief, moves from Gilgal to Bochim and brings an announcement to Israel that because of their failure to maintain a strict distinction between themselves and the Canaanites, because they have broken the covenant, with, that God established with them by not tearing down the altars to the false gods because of their compromise, God announced that he would no longer drive out or give them victory over the enemies in the land. Verse 3, we read, Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So this is going to be a problem throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament, and its source is this event. This eventually is why Israel will be disciplined by God, why the northern kingdom will be taken out in divine discipline in 722 B.C., while the southern kingdom is taken out in discipline in 586 B.C. is because they succumb to the pressure of the pagan culture around them. They refuse to maintain a distinction. They refuse to operate on human viewpoint, and they refuse to apply doctrine. They succumbed to idolatry, and for that reason, God had to bring the ultimate and worst uh, discipline upon them by taking them out of the land during, the, uh, during that time. So its source is the initial failure of the uh, conquest generation. <coughs> now, the people respond by a display of emotion in verse 4, which often happens when we get in trouble with the Lord and we disobey God and we feel, the, uh, feel His divine discipline, we respond in uh, remorse and in sorrow. Unfortunately, it doesn't last very long because it is merely a reflection of the fact that we're sorry we got caught, sorry we got in trouble, and it's not because we're uh, truly uh, repentant of what we did. Now, the word repent is from the Greek word metanoeo, which means a change of mind, the uh, word metamelomai is a different word. It indicates remorse or sorrow. And what God expects from us is not remorse or sorrow, but metanoeo, which is a change of thinking. A change of thinking is only observed over a period of time. A lot of times you run into situations where people uh, are in a miserable situation in their life, or all of a sudden God is... Uh, bringing some consequences to bear in their life to get their attention. And so they're immediately very sorry for what they have done. And there's a lot of weeping and wailing and there's a lot of uh, display of emotion. But there is no real mental change. And what happens is there may be some superficial change for a week or two or maybe even a month or so. But before long, there is, they slide right back into the old habits. And that's exactly what happened with Israel Throughout this entire period, God would discipline them, and they would just slide back into the same old practices. In fact, we never read that in, in Judges that they truly repented, that is, changed their mind about their behavior and their compromise with the Canaanites. 
So verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 takes place during the life of Joshua. So once again, we have this back and forth, this thematic development. Joshua died in 2-1, but, I mean in 1-1, but by 2-1 we're talking about a period before his death. Because in 2-6 in we read, when Joshua had dismissed the people. Now, if you try to read this chronologically, you're going to scratch your head and say, well, I thought Joshua was dead. But that's because you're thinking about this as a Western European influenced by a Greek and Latin uh, chronological development of history and uh, not as a Jew. See, Jews tend to develop history thematically so you learn the end from the be- and the beginning so you can see the consequences of certain actions. So the writer goes back to the time before Joshua to explain the dynamics of what's going on. And we see in verses 6 and following the cycle that takes place in terms of their disobedience and, and discipline. Verses 6 through 10 describes once again the uh, death of Joshua. And then in verse 11, we saw that the writer emphasizes the core problem of idolatry. They were not faithful to God. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. Now the term Baals in the plural, in the Hebrew Baalim, refers to all of the false gods, the entire pantheon of the Canaanites. And that's a subject we're probably going to have to get into in some detail as a study of the uh, uh, religious practices of the Canaanites, and we'll do it in... Uh, an incremental manner so I don't bore you to death with a lot of details at first and overwhelm you with all of these new terms and uh, situations. The Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, followed other gods. And verse 13, so they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. And this brings in the female deity, that was associated with Baal in terms of the fertility religion. Now, that's the essential problem here, is that the uh, Canaanite religion had at its core the idea of prosperity. When you read fertility, and you, you must understand that this is an agricultural society, and so they are concerned about having abundant crops, they are concerned about having food, and, and uh, food on the table, and they are concerned about their livestock and having... a flocks and uh, herds that are growing and increasing, so they are very caught up with the whole concept of fertility. And they move into a land that has been dominated with a people that are success-oriented and have a success-based religion, promising, as it were today, health and prosperity. So the modern concept of a prosperity gospel and health and wealth and all that goes with it is nothing more than sort of a modern baptized version of the old uh, fertility religions of the ancient world and the old phallic cult. Now, one of the things that's interesting that interested me on our trip, we spent the last week in London, and one of the fascinating things there was that we spent a couple of days at the British Museum and at the uh, British Library. And the British Museum has one of the greatest collections of of antiquities uh, outside of Cairo, and you have the gates of Nineveh are there, and all of the displays from uh, uh, Sennacherib's invasion and the defeat of the Jews at Lake Hish, all the way up to the gates of Jerusalem when the angel of the Lord came and wiped out the entire army of the Assyrians, and all of that's on display there among many other artifacts. But one, one of the things that interested me uh, 
uh, in light of the study that we're conducting here on fertility religion, is that um, one of the display rooms for the uh, for Egyptian artifacts, there was various cases with with a lot of different artworks and different things, and it was just almost pornographic because of all of the displays of phallic symbols and the emphasis on sexual fertility that was there. And so you just get a glimpse of how uh, perverted these cultures were as they had adopted these uh, practices because they, were, uh, they had adopted at the core of their religious system the idea that if they were doing something in the physical realm, then that would then influence in sort of a sympathetic mirror type of fashion the gods to perform certain actions. So their religious system was based upon uh, sex, and they would go down to the local temple, and they would get one of the prostitutes associated with Baal worship, and they would uh, acquire her services, and by engaging in sex, that would in turn influence the gods to uh, make their crops fertile. <coughs> so this, of course, would appeal to the lust patterns of the sin nature, and had great uh, influence and popularity and was one of the reasons that God wanted to destroy the Canaanites because they engaged in all kinds of bestiality was part of the practice as well as uh, incest and prostitution and, and just tremendous degrees of perversion that you cannot even imagine. Hopefully you can't imagine it. And uh, uh, this was just the standard lifestyle of that particular culture. So that is one reason God wanted to destroy them. But instead, Israel compromised with them and began to adopt the practices so that they began to think and act like the culture around them. And the result of all of this is God's divine discipline, which is explained starting in verse 20 of chapter 2. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And I did a study the last time where we looked at the anger of the Lord as an anthropopathism. Now, anthropopathism is a term... Two key words that you have to have in your vocabulary are anthropopathism and anthropomorphism. Let's take the second one first, because once you understand that, then the other one follows. And anthropomorphism comes from two words, the Greek word anthropos, which means man, and morphism, which means form. So the definition of an anthropomorphism is the attribution to God of physical characteristics and attributes which he does not actually possess in order to convey his plans, purposes, and policy. It is the use of attributing to God human attributes, human physical attributes, to God which he does not actually possess in order to convey... God's plan, purposes, and policies towards mankind. For example, it talks about the eyes of the Lord go to and fro upon the earth, and it talks about the hand of the Lord, and it talks of, and in other passages you have what's called a zoomorphism, which is the attribution of animal characteristics to God. For example, the wings of the Lord, um, things like that. And this is simply a figure of speech designed to convey something about God. Well, an anthropopathism comes from anthropos, meaning man, 
and pathism, which has to do with, with emotion. And this is the attribution to God of certain human emotions, which, again, God does not actually possess, in order to convey aspects of God's plan, purposes, and policy toward mankind. Now, some people have a lot of trouble with this because they want God to to be as uh, emotional as they are and to somehow be able to identify with God. They think that God has to have all of the emotions that they have. And in this discussion, what we have to realize is that a phrase like this, and this is a classic example, someone will go and say, well, it says that the Lord is angry here. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. But the phrase here in the Greek is not a literal statement like it is in the English. It is, in fact, an anthropomorphism. Because the literal Greek phrase is the nose of God burned against Israel. So the issue is not, is it literal or figurative? The issue is, how figurative is it? Because it starts with a figure of speech. It is not a literal statement in the Hebrew that God is angry. It starts off with a figure of speech saying God's nose burned. So it is not a literal statement in the original. It's a figurative statement. And now, in terms of interpretation, you have to determine how, uh, how figurative is it. And what it is using is human, the human emotion to indicate the intensity of God's righteousness and justice in reaction to human sin. What the righteousness of God rejects the justice of God must condemn. The righteousness of God is His standard, His absolute standard of perfection. His justice is the application of that standard to mankind. So what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God must condemn. And when you have phrases like the anger of God, this is simply a figure of speech to indicate the intensity and the extreme reaction uh, of God to human, or response of God to human sinfulness. So we see that in divine discipline, God it responds to Israel's disobedience and states in verse 20, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I, will, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So they are going to be allowed to stay at the this is the end of holy war. Now, one of the interesting things that we'll see, and I think there's a play on words in the Hebrew. I haven't read anyone who's really developed this idea. But in the, in the Hebrew, you have the word cherub. Looks like this. H, this is really more of a C-H-E-R-E-M. And it means, and it's usually translated, put the ban on, which I think is a very nebulous term, and it, it basically means to annihilate the enemy. Now, this word was used by the surrounding Canaanites as a term that was synonymous, at least, at least the cognate form, the verb was used, as a term that was synonymous with an, another Hebrew word, kadash. Q-A-D-A-S-H. Now, Kadash is normally translated holy. Now, in the surrounding Canaanite religion, they would 
they called their gods not only Kadash, holy, which emphasized that they were, uh, they were terrible, they were unique, they were far beyond their imagination or their understanding, but they also would apply the word harem to those, to those gods, which has to do with being isolated. Now, we know this word as it comes down to us in, in Arabic as harem, because it has that idea of isolation and the... Uh, uh, a sultan or a leader would have a harem of wives who were isolated from everyone else and they were under his protection. So it has that idea of isolation, but in Hebrew, the cognate is never used as a synonym of holiness, but is always used as annihilation. And I think this is a very subtle play on words for the Jews who would recognize that, that they were to annihilate what the Canaanites called holy. And it's a very subtle reminder that kind of goes past most English speakers because we don't understand. Very few people get into the original language and look at these things. But this is the the subtleness of God's Word, and the Holy Spirit would bring these points out in the original language. It's also somewhat humorous because of the nature of... of, uh, the Hebrew sense of humor. It's a dry wet, sort of like the Brits have. And God says that He will not drive out, and He no longer are they supposed to practice the harem or the holy war against the, the uh, Canaanites. This is the end of holy war, and there is no basis for holy war in human history ever again. This is the end of it. The only time it ever existed with any validity was during this period of time, and now it's over with because of the Jews' failure to annihilate annihilate the Canaanites. Now, in verse 22, he explains his purpose for leaving them in order to test Israel by them. Now, this, again, is an interesting word in the, in the Hebrew, and the whole concept of testing is very important, one we need to and are going to take some time to look at. This is the Hebrew word, nasa. Looks like this in the Hebrew. N-A-S-A. NASA. That's not NASA. That is NASA. And it means to test, to try, to prove, to tempt. has a variety of meanings depending on the contest. To assay the value of something. I want to emphasize that concept. To put something to the proof. And it also means to... Uh, Train. Interesting concept. Those of you who are here Wednesday night when Dan was finishing up on uh, Hebrews 12, he was emphasizing, uh, emphasizing the fact that divine discipline has as his emphasis training, the Greek word paiduo, training. And that this is one of the basic nuances of the word nasa is to train Israel by them. And this gives us a tremendous insight into the nature of testing. Testing isn't designed just to be a thorn in the flesh and some kind of problem that somehow God is uh, displeased with with, uh, us or displeased with Israel. So he says, well, now, because you failed, I'm going to make you suffer for a while. It is the idea of training in order to develop their spiritual skills so that they will learn how to trust God. 
And it's, that's the sense of test. It's the idea of assaying, assaying the value of something. You, you would take, for example, if you were a miner and you had some, some ore, you would assay it. You would test the value of it. You would, it was not, to, not designed to see what is there that is of no value, but to determine what is there that has value. In that sense, it is very similar to the Greek word uh, noun, dokimion, and the verb dokimazo, which means to test or to evaluate for, this, for the purpose of approval. You see, God is not concerned with demonstrating the believer's failures. So all of our sins were paid for on the cross. That's what grace is all about. Most Christians are running around filled with guilt, trying to deal in many legalistic ways with sin in their lives, and they don't understand the fact that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins on the cross. And that's what grace is all about. When I was in Kazakhstan and teaching on the spiritual life, and George Meisinger was teaching, we would sort of switch off because uh, it got a little warm there every now and then. You know, temperature hit 104, 105, and... Uh, they did have two air conditioners. They needed our two air conditioners. They put in two window units that knocked the temperature down to a livable 95. Unfortunately, it was only about a 20% humidity, so 95 really wasn't too bad. But uh, we decided that out of grace towards one another, we would alternate. One morning I would teach, and then the next morning George would teach, and then we'd switch off in the afternoon, so we each got to bear the brunt of the afternoon. It was always nice. I always enjoyed it when I got an afternoon shower when I taught in the afternoon. But I'm so loaded up on decongestants and having an out-of-body experience, I forget the point I was trying to make from that (laughs) illustration. I just hope I make some sense to you this morning. Anyway, where were we? So God is going to test Israel and, and evaluate them. Oh, this was a point I was trying to make to, the, to them, and that both George and I were emphasizing what we were teaching, is that in God's grace, God is designed in demonstrating what's of value in our lives, not in bringing up all the negative things. And that was just, as the week went by, you could just see the light come on in their eyes as they began to understand for the first time what grace was all about. And they had no clue as to what grace was all about. And by the second week, after we got past all the initial problems of the first week, you could just tell that they were getting more and more excited about what they were learning. They, and, and these people were coming, and some of them came from as far away as uh, 1,500 miles, and they would sit there for six hours a day uh, learning the Word. And they didn't, some of them just slept on the floor at night so they could be there the next morning. And you just don't see that kind of uh, positive volition to the word very often. I was in uh, Belarus six years ago, five years ago. And um, that was not long after the breakup in the, uh, of the Soviet Union. And their people were pretty curious, but you didn't have that kind of positive volition. These people just got, as each day went by, they got more and more excited, especially as they understood the nature of grace. And grace means that God has done everything for us. We don't need to worry about our failures and focus on our failures because Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins. God is not going to bring us up to judgment at the uh, judgment seat of Christ and put on display 
all of our failures and all of our sins so that we can be embarrassed by them and so that we can uh, suffer one more time because we were uh, sinners and that we disobeyed God and failed God many times. That is not the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ. There, remember, everything, all of our works are piled up to be evaluated. The image is of a fire that burns it all up and what is left is what's put on display, not what's burned up. It's not the wood, hay, and straw that's the focus. It's the gold, silver, and precious stones that's the focus. It's the divine good that's the focus. And so the, the purpose of testing throughout Scripture and God's testing of the believer is not something that is negative, not something that is designed to make you suffer and to make life hard, but in order to give you an opportunity to reveal what God is doing in your soul and to put on display the doctrine that you have learned so that God can be glorified in the process and we can see that God does take care of us and His grace is sufficient for all of our needs. So the idea of testing here, which is the main idea in the remaining verses down through verse 6, is very important for us to understand. These nations are, are left to test Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. Notice, there's only two options. It's not, well, you know, there may be a number of different ways to God and all, or all ways lead to God, but there's only two options, either the path of obedience or the path of disobedience. So verse 23, So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. Notice, the Lord allowed. This is the permissive will of God. God allows, so often you run into people who say, why does God allow all these horrible things to happen in human history? Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow evil? Why didn't God just somehow restrain these things? Well, in some sense, He does. If God weren't, it would be a whole lot worse. We would th- be thinking that living under Stalin or living under Hitler was, was a, some kind of a paradise. Uh, the fact that God, that we don't all live under systems like that is a, an example of God's grace and God's goodness that He is restraining evil in uh, this present world. And that God in His in permissive will allows sin to continue and allows evil to continue in order that He may achieve certain purposes. Once He brings human history to a conclusion or once He stops sin... That will entail bringing human history to a conclusion because it will entail the cessation of volition. So God must uh, allow sin to continue for a time in order that he might demonstrate his grace and that more and more people can come to salvation. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain. There is a purpose behind God's sovereign decision and it is to ultimately bring about Christian maturity. And the same thing was true in the Old Testament. Then starting in verse 3, he gives us a catalog of the nations that are left. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. There's our word again, Nassah. To test Israel by them, that is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of, Can- uh, of Canaan. So these are the, this is the next generation. Only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. Now, notice that. For those of you who think that the Bible somehow advocates pacifism, that God is leaving these nations there so that the sons of Israel might have someone to train their military against. God is not against war. There are just wars and there are unjust wars. God is not a pacifist. In fact, one of the technical terms for 
Jesus Christ is that he is Yahweh Sabaoth. That's a term that's used in a mighty fortress is our God. And unfortunately, most people try to make it Sabbath because they don't understand it comes from the Hebrew, meaning Lord of the armies. And God is not against war per se. He is only, uh, is only unjust war that violates his standard. But war is necessary at times in order to preserve freedom. And freedom must be preserved in order to have stability and peace so that the gospel can go across international borders so that people can be saved. It's in times of uh, uh, when there is no freedom that the gospel cannot go forth. So war is necessary at times to preserve freedoms. Now, verse 3 lists the nations that are left, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon. This is up on the edge of Tyre and Sidon to the north of the land of Israel. And they were for testing Israel, for the purpose of testing Israel. There's our word nasa again. To find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. So this tells us the purpose for testing is to discover whether or not we are going to apply what we learn. Therefore, I think it's necessary for us to stop and take a look at the biblical doctrine of testing. Biblical doctrine of testing, point number one, is definition. Now, this is a long point. For those of you who aren't awake yet, we're going to have points and subpoints and subpoints. So don't get too confused. I'll try to keep it clear. Point number one is a definition. I'm going to read you the definition, and then I will break it down into three components and discuss each aspect as subpoints. Definition. A test is any situation in life when the believer has the option of choosing between applying doctrine or using his own resources to solve the problem. I'll say that again. A test is any situation in life when the believer has the option of choosing between applying doctrine or using his own resources to solve the problem. Anybody need that again? Okay, let's break it down. Do what? Somebody's slow over here. The Navy guy's always slow. (laughs) A test is any situation in life when the believer has the option of choosing between applying doctrine or using his own resources to solve the problem. You know, this is really easier than I thought it would be after two weeks of crunching everything down to about a five or eight word sentence and then stopping for two minutes while it got translated first into Russian and then into Kazakh. I didn't know if I could talk fast anymore. <clears throat> the trouble with that is when you, get, when, you, when you do that, you just make a sentence and then you're thinking down the way as to what you're going to say next. You always have to think and you just can't get into any kind of extraneous illustrations or anything because you just don't have time. And then you will be, in in your mind, it's like you've you've hit a long drive in baseball and you're rounding third base. Translators still back at home plate trying to figure out how to get to first base. And they say, now what did you say? Well, you're down at rounding third base and you have to come back and say, well, did I hit a line drive, a grounder, or or a fly ball? What, What... 
And you just don't even, and then you have to go back and resurrect what you said three minutes ago in another world. It's quite an experience. Anyway, a test is any situation in life when the believer has the option of choosing between applying doctrine or using his own resources to solve a problem. Okay, small a under, number, under the definition, which is point one. A test is any situation in life. Let's explain that. Any situation in life. This would include mundane, everyday situations in life from how you drive to how you uh, respond to uh, uh, someone, let's say a checkout cashier at the local grocery store or some telephone salesperson who calls right in the middle of dinner when four things are going on at the same time or uh, to, to uh, responding to how uh, politicians are handling situations at, in Washington. So any situation in life refers to everything from the mundane, everyday situations to the extreme disasters and uh, adversities that we face. These may be pleasant situations. In fact, those are some of the worst tests because it's the pleasant situations that often distract us from applying doctrine because we think, well, I don't need God. This is a good thing. I can handle it by myself. Or it may be an unpleasant situation of adversity. These situations involve people. They may involve family members. They may involve your spouse. They may involve your children or your parents. It may involve uh, business associates. It may involve people you don't even know, such as someone else driving on the highway as if they don't understand the purpose for a motor vehicle. It may involve uh, people you just run into in some sort of uh, everyday situation at the store, department store shopping, some, uh, somebody who's, uh, who you don't know but is there to help you or, uh, and doesn't really know what they're doing, and that aggravates you. It may involve system testing. There's all kinds of systems we work under. There are po- political systems, whether we live in a monarchy, a democracy, socialism, whatever it may be. It may be a system at work in terms of the structure of office politics and everything that may go along with that that's negative or, or positive. It may be uh, having to deal with a bureaucracy. And I think that everybody of a certain uh, political persuasion in this country ought to spend at least a year in a former Soviet republic filling out all their own paperwork before they're allowed to vote. I tell you, you find out what socialism is really like when you go over there. And uh, one of the things that happened at the church we were, we were uh, working in is that the pastor could never attend any of the sessions. He really needed to, but he couldn't because you don't have separation of church and state over there, so you don't have such a thing as a non-profit organization. So the pastor is... Um, the pastor's got a job. He's got a business, and that's a church. So that's registered with the government. So if anybody comes from out of town to visit that church, then the pastor has to go down with them to register them with the local authorities. If they come in from out of state or out of the country, then he has to go with them and go through all that registration, fill out all that paperwork. And every day we had more people coming in from out of the city, out of the region, out of the country, and so they were continuously having to go down with the government to register them. And if you came from out of the country, as we did, then you had um, two, only two days a week in which you could be registered with the government. And that office was only open for 30 minutes each of those two days. So, uh, 
I think things were a little worse there than they are here, but that's where we're headed. Not much. It's a matter of degree and not kind. Uh, Bureaucratic systems are some... I almost want to make that a separate category of testing just because it's so personally frustrating. All kinds of systems that we work under and have to deal with. Thought is another category of testing. What's going on in our thinking? How are we responding? What's our mental attitude? Are we involved in mental attitude sins or are we rehearsing divine viewpoint and promises in our thinking? So any situation in life then is defined as any opportunity where you have to make a, make a decision. It can be good, it can be bad, it can be mundane, it can be extreme. B, under definition. The phrase, when the believer has the option of choosing. When the believer has the option of choosing. This emphasizes the issue of volition. Volition. God created man with volition. That is free will. What goes along with volition is personal responsibility. That we are responsible for the decisions we make. And we are accountable for those decisions and the consequences of those decisions. Volition emphasizes that it is your choice. And it is your responsibility for making that choice, whether good or bad. Principle. Our lives are the results of the decisions that we make. Interestingly enough, or ironically enough, many of the decisions that we make that tend to set our course are made before we are probably 10 or 12 years of age. We develop all sorts of habits as a result of decisions we make when we're very young, and yet at that age we are not volitionally conscious. That means we're not fully aware that that these decisions, these habits, these uh, mental attitude patterns or practices may be extremely damaging over the long run. We don't understand the consequences, and yet we've already made certain decisions and set a certain course for our lives at a very young age just by following uh, either an older sibling in their example, or parents, or just the traits of our sin nature, whatever it may be. But our decisions set the course of our lives. That's the principle. Our lives are decisions, I mean, our lives are determined by the decisions we make. They are not determined by our environment. They are not determined by the decisions that other people make. Uh, Our lives are not determined by the good or bad situations or circumstances that we find ourselves in that are beyond our control. Our lives are determined by the decisions we make in response to those that environment, in response to the decisions others make that affect us, that um, are made in response to the good or bad situations or circumstances we find ourselves in. You can find people who grow up in the same home under the same parenting, and one person makes a success out of life and chooses good decisions, and the other person makes bad decisions, and they're failure in life. And it's not the result of their environment. It's not the result of anything else other than their own personal volition and the decisions they make. You can find examples just in, not I'm not talking about spiritual things, but just in everyday life. You can go into um, the ghetto and you can find homes where there are Children who grow up in dire circumstances of poverty and poor education and poor parenting and 
bad examples all around them and one child chooses to follow the pattern set around them and the other one chooses to reject that and they become a su- very successful in life. It has nothing to do with environment. Now, I'm not saying that these don't play, play a role, but we all have different environmental factors. You can find people who grow up with everything given to them and they have no capacity and they destroy their lives and drugs and criminality and perversion. So environment only provides the uh, circumstances or occasions in which we operate on our volition. But the issue is always volition. So under point B, when believer has the option, the first principle was that our lives are the results of the decisions we make. Second principle, we cannot blame the environment or others for our bad decisions. If you want to find out if you're a failure, just find out whether or not you own up to your own bad decisions and you accept responsibility for your own failures. That's a good barometer of whether or not you are on the path of success. Third principle, we are always accountable for our decisions even when we are not aware of all the negative consequences of those decisions. Ignorance is no excuse. Just because you're not aware that the, uh, your decision is going to result in certain consequences doesn't mean that or doesn't excuse you from responsibility for those decisions. And one of the principles you hear talked about a lot today is the sort of the law of unintended consequences. And this plays itself out throughout life. We make many decisions and sometimes they result in unintended good consequences and then we want to take all the credit for that. But then when it plays itself out in unintended bad consequences, then we want to blame somebody else. But we never have the option of blaming someone else for the results of our bad decisions, no matter what they are. Then C, under point one, is the phrase between applying doctrine or using our own resources. Principle, in any circumstance, in any decision-making circumstance, you are either operating in the sphere of divine viewpoint or the sphere of human viewpoint. See, all of Scripture presents one unified perspective on life which we call divine viewpoint. This presents God's values, God's uh, criterion, God's way of thinking about everything. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, the Bible is called the mind or the thinking of Jesus Christ. This is divine viewpoint. In contrast to that, there is human viewpoint, which has another technical term, which is called paganism. Paganism is not a pejorative term. It simply refers to those cultures, societies, and thought forms that are uh, not biblical. I'm not going to say not Christian, because there are many people who think this is Christian or that's Christian. They don't have any idea what Christian is or what it means. And the best phrase is biblical. So you either think biblically or you don't think biblically. It's either Another thing we could say is divine viewpoint is biblical viewpoint, and human viewpoint is non-biblical Viewpoint. So all of those phrases are synonymous. Now you have two spheres of thinking. Now within divine viewpoint, you might have three or four different options that you can take in the way that you respond to a certain set of circumstances. Same thing in paganism. Usually in human viewpoint thinking, there are many, many more options for solving your problems than in divine viewpoint. But in any circumstance, you're either operating in one sphere or another. This is why God said back in 2.22... 
that the purpose of the testing was to determine whether they would keep the way of the Lord to walk in it or not. These are the options. You're either going to walk in the way of the Lord, which means you're applying, you're learning and applying doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit, or not. Principle number two. From birth on, the only options presented to us, that is, before salvation, the only options presented to us come from our sin nature. From birth on, the only way you have to respond to life situations is, comes from your sin nature, either as human good or as personal sin. But because you are devoid of the Holy Spirit, because you're not regenerate, because you do not have any way to understand spiritual things and doctrine, then you cannot do anything other than that which is produced by your sin nature. Therefore, it is all uh, human good and it is all human viewpoint. So that's, those are the only options. Now, the result of that is that even though these solutions might work, they're ultimately self-destructive. Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. That means it's self-destructive. The issue is not does it work. There are all kinds of things that work. Satan is a master counterfeiter. He's not going to put all of his energy into systems that don't work. They do work at least temporarily, at least over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, they seem to solve problems. The issue isn't, does it work? The issue is not, does it make me functional? You see, that's what this is really the problem with secular psychology. The goal is to make people functional. But if you're a believer, especially if you are a pastor, the goal is not to make people functional. The goal is to make people spiritually mature and glorify God. And I don't care if people are functional or not. I want them to realize that the only way to make life a success in the long term, which means eternity, is to solve problems God's way. So the issue is not, does it work? Does it make me functional? Does it alleviate the pain? A good six-pack of beer and some drugs can alleviate a lot of pain. The issue is not, does it alleviate the sorrow and misery in my life? Or does it make me happy or feel good? And that's the typical response of, of most people is, if it's right, it's right because it made me feel good or happy or alleviated the pain. The issue is, does it have eternal spiritual value? And in some cases, choosing the biblical option means that you are going to stay in a difficult situation and endure suffering and hardship. And choosing the human viewpoint solution means you escape the problem, at least temporarily, but eventually it will come back to haunt you. So the only options presented to us from birth are come from our sin nature. It is only once we are saved, that is, faith alone in Christ alone, when we are regenerated, when we are given a new nature, when we are given God the Holy Spirit to help us understand and assimilate doctrine so we can apply truth to our lives, that we can begin solving problems through God's solutions. Principle, our own resources means that Mankind has developed many different techniques for handling problems. Many of them work. Many of them do temporarily alleviate the problem. They make us feel better. They make us happy. They alleviate the pain and the sorrow. But they do not ultimately solve the problems. So the issue in testing is whether we are going to rely upon human resources or on divine resources, which are the ten stress busters that we have discussed many, many times, and whether or not we are going to rely upon God's solution, which is the only solution.
solution. Now that pretty much covers point one in terms of definition, and we'll come back and look at four more points on testing next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to realize that you are God of grace who has given us all of the resources we need to solve our problems, and that you solved the greatest problem that we will ever face at the cross, and that was sin. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that they would realize that you paid the penalty in full, that there are no strings attached, that Jesus Christ died on the cross as our substitute. He paid the penalty for our sins, and all we have to do is accept that free gift by faith alone in Christ alone. The issue is not moral reformation. The issue is not joining a church. The issue is not church involvement or or any other human factor, the issue is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Therefore, right now, if you've never done that, all you, you can be saved just sitting where you are by simply putting your faith in Christ alone. Father, we do thank you that you have given us not only salvation, but a unique spiritual life and all that we need in order to live it, to solve any problem we face in life, that you might be glorified. Pray that we might be challenged by the things that we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.